Father, as we begin this night, before another word is said, we recognize that if you do not meet us in this place, that we will not experience you. So God, I pray right now in all earnesty that you would meet this group of people in this place. God, I pray that you would usher us in to a time of reflection of Jesus and the cross and the debt that He paid for sin for all those that You would call to know You and to worship You. God, we love You. We thank You for Jesus. We thank You for the sacrifice. And God, we're here to worship Him tonight and to worship You in spirit and truth. And so help us in a way that we can't God, I pray that You would lead us, that You would usher us, that You would direct us. God, that You would bring us to Your throne and that You would help us to see You in the sacrifice of Your Son more clearly through the work of Your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. So, after Jesus has entered into Jerusalem, The time for the Passover comes. And so Jesus directs two of His disciples, Peter and John, and He tells them, go make way for the Passover. Go prepare it so that we can come together and we can partake of it together. And so Peter and John ask the likely question, well, Jesus, where would You like for us to go? And so Jesus, still all the way to the very end, with miracles as He continues to amaze us, says, go into the town and find a man that's carrying a pitcher of water. And when you find this man, follow him to the house that he goes into. And when he's in that house, ask the owner of the house where the teacher should come and partake of the Lord's or partake of the Passover with His disciples. And He will lead you to an upper room a large room that will be furnished, and that's where we will come together and we will partake of this Passover meal. And so, the, so John and um, uh, Peter and John go together, and they find this place, and it's exactly as Jesus is said that it would be. And so, as they gather, and after the preparations have been made, something very beautiful happens. You see, this gathering would have been one of the most intimate gatherings that Jesus and His disciples would have partaken in. Usually the Passover meal would have been reserved for families taking it together. And so sometimes there would be one family that would gather. Or sometimes there would be two very close families that would gather together. Imagine for you the Easter celebration that you may partake of on Sunday. You'll gather with your closest relatives and your closest friends and you'll have a remembrance of Jesus and the resurrection and what He's done. And so as they gather together... This is like family as Jesus comes together with His disciples and as they partake in this Passover meal. And so as I imagine this table that's been prepared and as I imagine this room that has been set up, maybe there was an open window so that the breeze in the room could flow through and evening has now set in the time that they would take this Passover meal together. And so you can imagine possibly the candles that are set on the table flickering. 
And you can see the faces of Peter and of James and of John, these fishermen that Jesus called out of their boats to leave everything that they had and to follow Jesus. And then you see Matthew, the tax collector, who has had such a life change as he also left everything that he had to follow Jesus. And then you see Simon, the the Roman-hating zealot, who is there as well. And Jesus, in his eyes, as he looks across this table, and he sees the men who believed in him, and who believed that he was the Messiah, so much so that they were willing to leave everything behind and follow. So you can imagine in their eyes the love. After three years of walking day in and day out with this man, Jesus, seeing the compassion that he showed for people, you can imagine in their eyes the affection that they have for this Jesus Christ. And as Jesus looks at them, you can picture the love that He has for these men. The love that He not only has for them, but for the world. But especially in this moment, we know that Jesus has been anticipating this very time with great eagerness. In fact, in Luke chapter 22, He says, I have eagerly awaited to be able to gather for this experience, this Passover with you. And in John chapter 13, verse 1, we know that Jesus says that this is where He is going to show them the fullness of His love. The love that He has for these men. And so imagine it with me, will you? The intimacy, the beauty of this table, this Passover table that's been set. Now as you imagine, please, please understand that despite the love, despite the intimacy that is shared between these men and between Jesus, there is still something that is infiltrating their relationships. Something that has entered into the relationship between Jesus and between these men that caused the relationship to not be right. You see, even though these men have given up everything that they have to follow Jesus, even though they have been in His presence, they are still depraved men full of sin. Completely unable in and of themselves to have the perfect relationship that is required between them and Jesus Christ and between the Father in heaven. They are men that are prideful. They are men that are lustful. They're liars. They're cheaters. They hate others. And they're the disciples. But they're men in and of themselves. No matter how many miracles they've seen, no matter how many miracles they've done, they are completely depraved. And because of that, there is something that must happen in this relationship between Jesus and between these disciples. And so we know that going on, that Jesus must die. 
He must die for the sin that separates them from God. He must die to make these relationships right. Jesus must die. Scripture says that um, there was a chill in the air and a lot of things have just taken place. Jesus has just been in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter has sliced the ear off of Malchus. And Scripture says that there's a chill in the air. Can you imagine that chill? Like the event that would change the course of human history was getting ready to happen. Can you imagine the chill? Could you imagine the hearts beating and the voices whispering and the sin and the deceit that was taking place? Can you, can you imagine it? Good Friday is kind of nostalgic, isn't it? It's like we picture ourselves being there just for a moment. Imagine, if you will, the chill in the air. Peter has been the closest to Jesus out of any of the disciples. He was in the closest three. He was the closest one. Listen to this. Peter got to be there for the transfiguration. Peter got to sit and watch Moses and Elijah be transfigured. Listen to this. Peter got to walk on water. You know what I mean? I mean, Wouldn't that be amazing, right? Like He was the one that Jesus called out of the boat, which had to be cool. Like, we can just agree. I would have loved to have had that conversation. So, Peter, like, how was it, you know? Tell us about how it is to walk, in, uh, how it is to walk on the water. Because I'm sure Jesus would never brag about it, right? But Peter would have been like, man, like the waves and everything, it just felt so good. That same guy, so close to Jesus, so intimately connected, finds himself in the courtyard. Jesus is in the high priest Caiaphas' house being put on trial. And Peter finds himself in the courtyard and Scripture says that that there's a fire brewing and Peter steps closer and Scripture says that he sits to warm himself. The same guy who's been so close to Jesus, the same guy who's seen the transfiguration, the same guy who dropped a fishing net to follow Jesus, he finds himself right here watching Jesus curious. Can you guys understand the dicey situation? That's happening here. He's one of Jesus' disciples, and he's in the courtyard of the high priest Caiaphas who's putting him on trial right now. Can you guys get this? But he's there because he's curious. He wants to see like this great Savior who told Peter that he would build his church on him. The Lord even told Peter, listen to this, that he was praying for him because there would be a time coming when they would lose faith. And and Jesus looks at Peter and says, I'm praying for you that you would not lose faith. I mean, can you imagine the intimate relationship of Peter and Christ? 
This is the same guy that later on will say, crucify me upside down because I'm not worthy to die like my Savior. The same guy finds himself warming by a fire. And a servant girl comes up to him. A servant girl. 14, 15, 16 years old. The epitome of innocence. The epitome of, of beauty. And she asks Peter, warming himself by the fire, aren't you one of those guys? A servant girl asks. Aren't you one of those guys who's been following Jesus? Aren't you one of them? The same guy who's experienced the same guy who has seen Jesus, the same guy who has gone through three years worth of trial and blessing, he's seen the miracles, my friends. He's seen, listen to this, demons come out of people. He's seen exorcisms. He's walked on the water, and that same guy, to a little innocent servant girl, says, I'm not, no, that's not me. I don't know him, or even what you're talking about. If Peter cannot take a stand for Christ to a little innocent servant girl, can, can we just grasp for a moment what's happening? This is... I relate to this chair. I relate to it, don't you? It's like I watch myself despite watching God move in our midst and watching people come to Him and watching people grow, I find myself saying at times, I'm, I'm not Him. I don't know who you're talking about. Why? Because that's the exposed human heart. My friends, at the core of us, when exposed, when our heart bleeds, what is exposed is sin. Nasty, grotesque denial of the one who is greatest. But, but Peter's not done. Then someone else comes up a little bit later and all the Scriptures differ a little bit. By the way, this is one of the stories that's recorded in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You think it's significant? I would say so. Especially because Jesus told Peter, you will deny me before the rooster crows. And what does Peter say? And, and I relate to this too, because we want to do it, don't we? He says, Lord, not I. Like, it won't be me. I will stick with you forever. It's me and you. Do you relate to that? Like, you feel like at times you're like, God, I'm all in. Like, everything that I have. Peter even says, even if I have to die, I will do it for you. And he finds himself denying the name of Jesus to a servant girl, my friends. Someone else comes up and says, hey, um, like, I'm pretty sure you're one of those guys that has been following Jesus. Because you don't look like us. There's a lot of soldiers out here in the courtyard. Like, you look different. And Peter responds again, I, I don't know who you're talking about. I'm not him. I don't know the man, Jesus. And a third time. This time a relative of, of Malchus, John, uh, John tells us. Malchus the ear, right? And he's like, hey, hey, hey. Like, I'm pretty sure I saw you in the garden cutting off my relative's ear. Like, aren't you him? And in a moment of passion, in a moment of everything being exposed, he says, no, it's not me, my friends. 
Can you talk about anything more exposing of the human heart than the denial of Peter? It's you and I sitting on that chair day after day without the empowerment of Jesus saying, I will choose sin. I'll choose myself. And Luke records, and the passion portrays the movie. At that moment, the rooster crows. And at that moment, Peter looks over and Jesus has come out of the high priest's house and they make eye contact. Can you imagine that moment? Can you just let the weight of that sit on you for a moment? He looks over and he sees Jesus. Scripture says that Peter wept bitterly. My friends, it's you and I. Jesus had to die because when exposed, when our human heart is shown to the world, we're sitting on that chair. We're in desperate need of someone, something, some movement to come in and to change our nasty, broken, grotesque heart. And for that reason, for the exposure of the heart of one closest to Christ, he had to die. next few moments, I'm going to try to portray for you from the cross, the pain endured during the crucifixion. But guys, I've got to be honest with you right now, I'm not going to do it justice. There is no possible way that any word that I could ever say or express could possibly do justice to the suffering that Jesus Christ experienced on that tree. There's so many words that, that I could try to use. In fact, there's words that have even been created to try to express that suffering. The word that we have, excruciating, actually came from the words out of the cross. That's why we have the word excruciating. It was because of Jesus, and it was because of what he experienced. You see, after Jesus is handed over by Pilate to be crucified, he's taken to this place called the Praetorium. He's flogged, which would be taking a leather whip with pieces of glass and with pieces of metal, and he's beaten over the back repeatedly. And then in the praetorium, there's over 600 men that gather and they dress Jesus up with a crown of thorns and with a crimson robe. 
They put a scepter in his hand and they say, Hail Jesus, King of the Jews. And over and over, he's beaten with fists and he's beaten with the scepter over the top of the head so that the crown of thorns continues to drive further and further down into his flesh. He's mocked, he's ridiculed, he's punched, he's kicked, he's beaten very, very badly near death. And then at that point, they tell him to take his cross and go to the place of Golgotha. Now, when he reaches that place where he's going to be crucified, it was about nine o'clock in the morning. And what would happen is that they, after carrying this crossbeam that would weigh 100 to 150 pounds, and we know that Jesus had to have help then he would be thrown down to the ground. And the crossbeam would further be put up underneath his shoulders. And as he's thrown down to the ground, there's dirt that just gets caked up into that shredded back. And all over his flesh that's been broken and bleeding. And so his body is contaminated by the soil. And then after the contamination, they take his hands and they lay them on the cross beams of the cross and they would put nails into Jesus' hands. And after taking his hands and putting them on the cross beams, they would take that cross beam and they would lift it up onto the post of the cross. And so Jesus momentarily is hanging from that cross beams from his hands. And then after he's up on that cross beam, they would take his feet and they would put a nail through both feet. At this point, for Jesus just to take a breath, just to take a breath, he has to push up on his feet that have a nail driven through them pushing against the muscle tissue and against the blood vessels and against the bone that have been penetrated by this nail. And as he tries to lift up his feet, he has to push out on his elbows, trying to lift up his chest just so Jesus can take a breath. And each time that he lifts up, his back that's shredded open is rubbing up against that tree. Can you imagine with me for a moment? You've seen the movie. You've heard the words. But just for a moment, can you take yourself there to experience the excruciating pain that Jesus must be enduring? It was on that cross that there is a sign that is put above his head that would read, Jesus ha ton iodion which would have said, here is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And the sign is further used to mock Him. And then as people come around Him, they say, oh, oh, there's Jesus. Remember, He's the one that said that He could tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. Hey, Jesus, what's up now? Come on, if you're that good, you could just walk right off of that cross. Jesus You save so many people, right? That's what you said. Why can't you save yourself? He was ridiculed while he was up on that cross. And we know that in Jesus' moments on the cross, from that period from nine to noon, that there were dialogues that he had 
as he looked out and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And as he spoke to his mother and he spoke to a disciple asking to take care of her. And as he spoke to the man that was next to him, that he said, you will be in paradise with me because of your faith. But then, friends, from the account of Matthew chapter 27, something beautiful happens. You see, it gets dark right about noon. And in Luke, in the same account, it says that the sun ceased to shine. What must that have been like? It wasn't an eclipse. It wasn't a sandstorm. The sun ceased to shine. And from the period from noon all the way until 3 p.m., silence. Jesus doesn't say a word. And we don't know much about what is happening during this period of darkness. But imagine it, Will. Imagine it with me for a moment. Jesus up on the cross, crown of thorns, sign above his head in darkness. And Jesus is there. Imagine it. And at the end of that time, close to three o'clock, we hear the words of Jesus being uttered out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And what He says is, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? Why have You forsaken Me? And I cannot help but be caught up in the mystery of those words. This is Jesus who has a relationship with the Father in the Spirit, in the perfect Trinitarian relationship. How could He say that He's been forsaken? And it's in those words as He asked that question to God that we can find the answer for the darkness and we can find the answer for why He had to die. You see, in that moment, from noon until three, I believe that the reason that the sky gets dark, that the sun ceases to shine, is that Jesus takes on the sin of the world. Do you know that? Do you believe that? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that Jesus became sin. He becomes sin. And in that moment, He's becoming sin. And as He becomes sin, something happens. You see, God, because He's perfect, because He's just, because He's right, can have no relationship with sin. And so in that moment, Jesus feels forsaken. And it's not just that Jesus feels this time of being forsaken because of sin, this separation. You see, Jesus in this moment is taking on the sins of those that God would call. Jesus is taking on your disobedience to your mother and your father. He's taking on the time that you cheated on that test. 
He's taking on your lust. He's taking on pride. He's taking on your arrogance. He's taking on every malice part of you, every addiction that you've ever struggled with, everything that you have in your life that is not of God. Jesus takes it on. He takes on the disciples in their sin. He takes on Peter in his denial. He takes all of it upon himself and he bears it up on that tree, becoming a curse in that time when the sky is dark. And he experiences for the first time ever separation from God. But you see, it's not just that he experiences separation, but there's also something that happens in your Bibles. In Romans chapter 3, verses 25 and 26, you must see that something else happens. Romans chapter 3, verses 25 and 26. Check this out. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just as the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus You see, it's not just that He is forsaken, but that Jesus takes on the punishment that you and I deserve. Jesus in His body in that moment when He asked God, why have you forsaken me? Takes on the wrath of God as a substitute for us. It should have been you. It should have been me up on that tree. But Jesus takes our place as a substitute and becomes a sacrifice, bearing God's wrath, bearing the punishment of God so that God could be just as the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus had to die so that you and I could have a relationship with God. Jesus had to die because He was being obedient to His Father and Jesus knew that all of life is about worshiping Him. Jesus had to die because if Jesus doesn't die, you are completely lost forever. He had to die. some uh, horrible theology that we sing out of our mouths at times. And there's a couple worship songs that are very popular in our day and age that put the focus of the death of Jesus on us. Friends, let not one of us be confused tonight.
He died, yes, for the exposed human heart. He had to die, yes, for our wretched depravity. But friends, don't miss that he died, like Jason just said, to be obedient to the Father. Philippians chapter 2 said he, be, he was obedient, became obedient even to death on a cross. It's not about you. Do you guys get that tonight? Most times at this moment, it becomes about you and your wretched self. It's not. Tonight, it's about God. It's about God who had a great plan of redemption. It's about God who sent a son to die. It's about Him. It's not at all about us. And as for me and my house, that's a God worth worshiping. That's a God worth saying, you know what? I want you and I desire you. Someone that would create a plan to bring more glory to yourself. That's a God I want to serve. And so friends, don't get confused tonight. The cross will draw a line in the sand just like it has done tonight in this room. The cross forces response. It did out of Peter. It did out of James. It did out of John. It did out of Judas. It forced a response. And like most of you know, 10 of 11 of these disciples, wretched, depraved hearts, all of a sudden, after Christ, empowered with the Spirit of God, are martyred because they go and, and the cross forces a massive decision in their hearts. That same decision, that same moment of response is here for you and I tonight. It's the response of the ages. It's the response that every single person ever lived will have to come to. Is that a God that I not, I not just want to speak off my lips, but that I want to say, here, take my life by the empowerment of Your Spirit. I can give it to You. Can you imagine this meal? When Jesus breaks the bread and He says, this is My body which is broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of Me. I'm sure it meant something that night. Can't you agree? But can you imagine a month later? Can you imagine as now the pockets of disciples have gone out and they're meeting in underground homes because their lives are being chased after and they come together and they break bread and it looked different all the time, especially in the early church. Can you imagine the significance of this table? Can you? That I can imagine the disciples being like, can you remember the way Jesus looked at us? Can you remember when the Savior of the universe got on His knees and washed your feet? Can you remember the dirt that fell off? Can you remember all the, all the insults that we've heard about Him? And they break the bread together and they share in this ancient meal of remembrance. Friends, you and I tonight are called to remember of a body that was broken of blood that was shed and Jesus held up the cup and He said, this is My blood which is shed for you. Take and drink in remembrance of Me and I know for certain that that image stuck in the minds of those disciples post His resurrection. And so friends, hear this. Yes, we are nasty, grotesque, depraved. But can I share something with you? There is hope in Jesus. Period. 
That is the message of the Gospel. It's the message of the ancient Scriptures. It's the empowerment of the Spirit that each of us tonight, despite sitting in that chair of denial, have hope in Jesus Christ. The line has been drawn in the sand, and tonight I ask you to join in remembrance. The reality is some of you tonight will need to come, maybe even physically over here, and you'll need to spend some time confessing the denial of your heart. Maybe even specific examples that you've recognized recently where you've completely been ashamed of the gospel. You've listened to a different kind of music because of the people that you're around. You communicate differently, essentially denying who you are. Maybe some of you tonight will need to sit on this chair literally and repent or fall on your knees tonight. Maybe some of you We'll need to spend some significant moments in gratitude over the great cross. It's not just a Christian symbol. It's not just something that we wear around our neck. It's the representation of us being reconnected and reunited with the Father. And all of you tonight who have professed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, are welcome to come and gather at this table of remembrance. We'll be taking communion tonight by what's called intinction. You'll come up and tear off a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup. Scripture is clear, my friends, that our hearts must be softened and repentant. And I ask each of you tonight to allow yourself to be broken over a God who would send a son who had to die because of obedience and so that you could be reconnected to the Father tonight through worship, prayer, denial, cross, communion. Tonight, we respond to a great God. Let's respond.